You know, you need an eyepiece. You. When you started clapping, your eye, your face was like, and so it would be perfect if you had, like, the one eyepiece glasses. Mm, I'm going to wait until Rachel finds her seat before I start because she's having a lot of trouble there, if anyone can tell. She's, she's, dang. Well, everyone's excited. That's cool. There's a lot to be excited about. Fall advance was awesome. Fall break is next week. Who is disappointed about fall break? Two people. Two people wish they could be in school longer. Maybe one person wishes they could be in school longer. One person wishes they could be in school. But uh, that wasn't supposed to be a diss. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me, Damani. That was not a. That was nothing intended. It wasn't a diss at all. This is. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my cruelty. Well, we can go ahead and get started. <sighs> Tonight is the last night of a series that I've enjoyed. We've been talking about one big dilemma, one big problem that people have had with uh, Christianity and dealing with that each week. And so this week we're at the very last one and I'm really excited about tonight. I'm always excited, but I'm really excited about tonight because tonight I get to talk about something that I've been wanting to talk about for about two years now. And anybody who was in my small group last year remembers me talking about this in small group all the time, not actually saying anything about it, just saying how much I wish I could talk about it. Some of y'all are shaking their head like, I don't know what you're talking about. Tonight we're talking about hell. The subject of hell. One person is excited. <laughs> oh, I wasn't. I wasn't expecting anybody to be excited, but that's. I'll take that. Specifically, when it comes to hell, the 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 question of how how can God be good? How can a loving God send people to hell? Hell, judgment, loving God. These things seem mutually exclusive, and so tonight. We're going to talk about that. First thing I want to say about this, these are all the scriptures where Jesus talks about hell. These are all of them. If you look at them, they're all kind of spread out. Rachel figured there'd be more. Most people are surprised by this. Dang. Speed lightning. I'll go ahead and take them now. These are all the scriptures on hell. And they're kind of, they're pretty spread up, spread out too. So it's clear that Jesus was talking about these, talking about this subject. That's crazy. This is the subject. This is a subject where Jesus talked about it a good bit in his life. And one thing that tells me is that this was on purpose. It was not a mistake. It was important to him. Therefore, it's important to me. Why is it, why is it important to me? Not because I want hell to be important to me, but because Jesus makes it clear through how much he speaks about it and what he says about it, that it has to be important, that it has to be taken seriously, that it's crucial. And so tonight we're going to talk about hell and specifically three things about hell. Number one, why hell is crucial for us understanding our own hearts. Jordan, man, it's good to see you. It's always good to see a fellow brother and 
of the name Jordan. You know, we got to stay, stay together. It's hard out there for us. But number one, why it's, understand, why it's cru- crucial for us understanding our own hearts. Number two, why it's important for us understanding, for us having peace in the world, for living at peace in the world. And then number three, for us understanding the love of God. Why is hell important? Number one, because it's crucial for us understanding our own hearts. Number two, it's crucial for us having peace in this world. And number three, for us really understanding the full love of God. (laughs) I got to say that tonight, this is a very special issue for me because of how much I used to struggle with this issue. It was years of struggle. Katie can tell you about that struggle. It was real. I was really confused for a while. I had a friend who, he was, he was a preacher and he was a teacher. I, I revered him, and he really led me astray, and I trusted him, and it set me back for a while. But I'm grateful for th- specifically three men, and I'm leaning on them quite a bit tonight for everything that I have to say. W.G.T. Shed, W.G.T. Shed, one person knows who that is, two people actually, because Charles has one of his books. Tim Keller, a lot of y'all know who that is. And number three, C.S. Lewis. And it just so happens that C.S. Lewis's allegory on hell, I just have two copies that I just happen to be giving away. Whoever wants it, come and get it. Whoever wants the other one, come and get it. Y'all will enjoy that book. That book is in my top 10. That's a big deal. I got about 90 books that I want to put in my top 10. So y'all will have fun with that. Mr. Blamick, you can make your way down. Mr. Blamick's going to read to us. If you have a Bible, he is Superman. If anybody's seen Man of Steel, this is him. This is Henry Cavill. He looks everything like him. You're the only person who doesn't think that. Sorry, Damani. This is Henry Cavill. He was in The Last Man of Steel. He makes a lot of money. He's really rich, but it goes by the sure name of Nathan Blamick to appear like a student. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. It's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. Probably my favorite parable. Really excited to talk about it tonight. Mr. Blamick is going to read for us. Yeah, it is pretty low. (laughs) All right, so this is Luke um, 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, 
Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Thank you, Nathan. Oh, this is high. It's perfect. There's a lot going on in that parable. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've said to us about hell. Please help us to open up our hearts and to really listen to you and all that you meant to say regarding hell so that we would view it and ourselves and how we deal with this world and the injustices around it and how we view your love. Help us, Lord God, to see, to love you. Open up our hearts and help me to communicate all that you've placed in my heart, all that you've shown me. Please help me to be able to communicate that. Holy Spirit, speak through me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ooh, that parable is, uh, it's real. It's kind of intense. There's two characters in the parable, rich man and Lazarus. This is a very interesting parable because there's one detail about this parable that makes it unique from all the other parables in the Bible. Did anyone notice? A couple of y'all might know this because you've heard me say it before. What'd you say? Ah. This parable is unique because it's the only parable in the entire Bible where Jesus gives a proper name to someone. No one has a name in all of his parables except for the poor man, not Lazarus, not the rich man, the poor man. So we see the rich man is in hell without a name. And Lazarus is in heaven. And if it said up there, it said up there that, you know, he was carried to Abraham's side. That's just the Jewish term for, for heaven. And Hades, that's just the Greek term for hell. Lazarus is in hell without a name. Why is this? Who's ever heard of a thing called the summum bonum? couple of y'all. The summum bonum. What is the summum bonum? The summum bonum is the highest good, especially as the ultimate goal according to which the values and priorities are established in an ethical system. Basically, it's the ultimate thing that your life is based around. It's the one key thing. It's the reason why you do everything that you do. It's what you're doing it for. It's what you care about most of all. This rich man, what does Abraham say to him? 
He says, son, remember that in your lifetime you had your good things. And Lazarus had his bad things. But now Lazarus is comforted here and you are in hell. What does he mean by that? What does it have to do with why he's in hell? Because what he made his life about, the reason why he did everything that he did, the thing that he couldn't live without was his money and his wealth. And he got that. He achieved that in this life. The thing that he cared the most about was what he got. And so when he dies, he can't take that with him. And there's nothing left. Because what he placed his identity on was that. So that when he died, there was no him left. He was nothing. He was a rich man or nothing. Got papers this time, papers of my slides. <laughs> Trying something different. <laughs> Did someone say trendsetter? Hey everyone, look at me and my flashy papers. <laughs> this is this is amazing. <laughs> Never discovered before. Paper, trees, recreating them. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I'm sorry. I think my bad jokes are funny, but <laughs> here we go. But this man, he based his entire life around that and so he's here in hell there's a man named Soren Kierkegaard I'm not necessarily recommending that you recommend that you read him he's a Danish philosopher and a Christian he has some really good stuff in some books but most of his books are extremely hard to understand unless you're like James and really smart oh hold on he can't even understand him and so there's no hope for any of us <laughs> But there is one thing in, in one of his books, it's the only thing I've ever understood that he ever said, and it's phenomenal. It's so good that it's, it's, it is my definition for sin. It's my favorite definition. It makes sin make sense to me. In his book called Sickness Unto Death, he wrestles with, that, this, with the traditional definition for sin. The traditional definition of sin is what most of people would say sin is, just you know, breaking God's law. That's, that's, that's sin. But he attacks it and he says, hold on, that may not be good enough. And so he redefines it and he says sin is building your identity on anything but God. Building your identity on anything but God. Now some of you might be like, uh... I don't understand how that is a better definition, nor how does that make any sense. The reason he tackles this definition of sin is the Pharisees. He looks at the Pharisees, and he's like, look at these guys. These guys follow all of the law fastidiously. Yet, Jesus rips these dudes apart his entire life. I mean, every time he came across a Pharisee, he, like, tore them a new one. He was going off on these dudes all the time. Why? They did the law. They did everything they were supposed to do. But Jesus says they're wrong. In Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7, Jesus says, everything they do, and he's talking about the Pharisees here. It's a really long piece where he's talking about Pharisees, and he's just going after them. And he says, everything they do is to be done 
Everything they do is done for people to see them. Hold on. Everything they do is done for people to see them. That's their summum bonum. Let's keep going. They, they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They have the place of honor and banquets and the most important seats in the, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. When you look at each one of these things, these are all good things. They're supposed to wear priestly garments. That's what, I mean, that was a part of their job. It talks about it in the Old Testament. So it's good that they're wearing these things, but they, they had to spice it up a little bit so that people could notice them even more. It was good that they wanted to be in the banquets and in the synagogues. He wants them to be around people, but they, they didn't want to be there to serve God. They wanted to be there in order to be seen. In order to be seen as great. And then he says, they love to be called rabbi by others. He wants them to be teachers. They're supposed to be teachers. They're supposed to help people to understand. These are all good things. But they did these things. Why? Everything they do is done for people to see them. Don't you see? The summum bonum. They made their life. About, about using God in order to get what they really wanted. Not about, this wasn't about God. It wasn't to delight in God. It wasn't to know God. It was God as a means to an end. This is huge. This is so big. The summum bonum. What is our life based around? What do we care most about? What is the thing that we can't live without? Are the, is the reason that we do everything that we do, is it about reflecting God? Is, about, is it about him at all? Or is it about this relationship that you've made everything? Or this person? Or this, this thing? This is a very real thing. You look at, you look at Lazarus in this story. Man, this guy's a pretty sad case. He's in hell, he has no name, and he's, <laughs> he just doesn't get it. What does this have to do with hell? If somebody asks me what I think about hell, the first thing I tell them is, and just hold off, don't get, don't get mad at me before I finish my thought. The first thing that I tell them is, I don't think hell, I don't think when Jesus talks about hell, that he is meaning a literal hellfire that goes on forever. I don't think that. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it means a literal physical fire. I bet some, some people are like, oh, that's good. <laughs> but, and there's a big but here, but I do think it's a metaphor for something that's infinitely worse. Something that's so bad that words can't even capture how bad it is. What do I mean by that? What does the son of Bonham have to do with this? Addiction. Who has ever seen someone who's been caught up in addiction? We've already seen hands go up. We've seen it. Some of us, some of us have sadly seen it 
firsthand with our parents, our siblings, or other family members. Some of us have heard about it secondhand through friends and through friends' families. Some of us have seen it. We see it on movies. They portray addiction well. Addiction, it's a really real thing. What happens when people are addicted? You know, one thing that happens, you see their life disintegrate. You, their life is falling apart because they are needing more and more of whatever they're addicted to in order to get less and less of the, the hit. A great example is heroin. Heroin's an easy example. Heroin, you go and you, you, you take heroin. I don't know, you shoot heroin? Do you like, do you snort it? I, 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 do you Eject, e did you say eject it? <laughs> Inject, syringe. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, because that's the one where they they like tie. <laughs> that's the one where they tie it, you know, and they they melt it on a spoon. Yes, that's it. That's it. Heroin, though. The best hit of heroin is the first hit. That's the best hit of heroin that you'll ever have, and then after that, it's the chase getting more and more, trying to have more and more of the substance in, in order to get that first high, in order to feel that first feeling of just exhilaration, whatever it is, it's the chase. But you see that, that goes on with a lot of things. That goes on with pornography. It goes on with a lot of, heck, it even goes on with food. You know, you, you eat and you eat, and then it's like, hey, my stomach is it's not big enough or it never is satisfied. You know, you eat a lot. Who's ever gone on a vacation where you have to like come back after the vacation and like be able to like start eating normal amounts of food? Have you ever been on a cruise? A cruise ship, it is, it is terrible what goes on a cruise ship. I feel like they just like lay you on a bed and like just hook up something so that food can be going into you constantly at all times. You get, I mean, you put on so much weight. I've been on one cruise and I was just like, I hated food by the end of that cruise. I was like, I'm doing a 28 day fast. I don't care if I die. This is ridiculous. It was, it was so much food. <laughs> that would be awesome. But yeah, addiction, the first thing is, is this disintegration. You just see their life fall apart because they just need so much of some substance in order to satisfy. And it always needs to go to the next level in order to reach that, that former high. And what's the next stage of addiction? You know, you go and you see the isolation. They start lying to people. <laughs> they start saying weird things. They start saying, oh, you know, uh, no one really understands me. And it's just like, I... I'm different, you know, I, I struggle with some stuff, and people don't, like, yeah, I know, those other people, they're addicted, but me, like, it's, I'm different, this is a, they start saying these, these things of why they're okay, why it's not that bad, and, and obviously that goes directly into denial, denial where you are just, no one can talk to you, you, you are, you are completely separated from reality, it is a seared conscience, Disintegration, isolation, denial. That's the cycle of addiction. The reason why I said the thing about the fire is sin. Making, taking something that is good, like what the Pharisees did, and making it everything, what that does in your heart when you do that, when you lift anything up and say, as long as I have this, 
then I'll be happy. As long as I get this career, as long as I make this much money, as long as so-and-so is in my life, as long as I have this, or as long as people view me as this, as long as people think I'm great, or as long as, you know, like, I can just be able to relax and have my own time, or as long as I'm in control, or as long as I'm always right, whatever it is, whatever it is that you say, okay, as long as I have this, then I'll be happy. What that does, when you lift up something, many times it's good things. When you lift up a good thing and make it more ultimate than everything else, it starts a spiritual cosmic fire. What do I mean by that? C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, mm, here we go. Again, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to, oh, hold on, hold on. Oh, go back, go back, Heather, can you go back? Oh, I forgot something. I gotta make sure I say this, because you're like, hold on, this, this would be better if I make sure I say this. Who has seen the Iron Giant? Somebody said, oh yes, and it, that was deservedly so. This movie is off the chain. I love this movie. Anybody know that Vin Diesel was the, the Iron Giant's voice? I know, it's like, oh, that's awesome. And then you're like, oh, that's kind of lame. But, <laughs> man, yes, The Iron Giant is such a good movie. What, is it? what if The Iron Giant, what if he's right? It has been a while, even for me. He says, souls don't die. Souls can't die. What if the Iron Giant is right? The Bible says that too. And I'm just saying, when the Iron Giant and the Bible agree on something, <laughs> it just has to be true. It's just got to be true. It has to be. But for real, souls don't die. Now we can go to my quote. Sorry about that, Heather. Or C.S. Lewis's quote. This isn't me. Again, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever and ever. And this must be either true, true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live for only 70 years, but which I had better bother about if, which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the, is the correct technical term for what this would be. It is not a question of God's, of, it's not, it is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Fire. You watch a log in the fire, and it's disintegrating. It's falling apart from the inside. Fire. Imagine taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing, and that thing getting grips of your life, so much so, that you can't live without it in being in that forever.
You look at the rich man in this story, this guy, commentators have noticed the insanity of this dude. And what is insanity? It's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. This guy, he's made his life about his wealth and his status and his ego. He calls to Abraham and he says, hey, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Hey, go and send Lazarus to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. He doesn't ask to get out of heaven. He just asks to get Lazarus in heaven. And he's trying to get Lazarus to serve him. Even in death, even in hell, this, thing's, this guy still thinks that he is better than Lazarus. He's still tied to his old hierarchy, hierarchy his old ego. And then you keep looking at his life. He, the guy, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it at all. That's addiction. How many times do we see people like this where, or how many times are we like this? Like Lazarus. I mean, like the rich man where the only thing we see is like, oh, you know what? This fire isn't so bad. This thing isn't so bad. You know, like, yeah, I don't necessarily like this in my life, but I have control over it. I'm in control of this. It's, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I can live without it. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just remembered an example from Winky Prattney. He was talking about this one time. I completely forgot about this. <laughs> he was saying how you see this all the time with, like, drug addicts because he used to work with uh, in a drug intervention program, and so he was always around drug addicts, and they were like, you know, I can stop. I can stop any time. You know, I can, I'm, I'm okay. You know, it like he would watch people doing drugs telling him that they had complete control over it in front of him. <laughs> that's a fire inside, and that's hell. And that's hell. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. We go, we tie our hearts to something, we let ourselves be enslaved by something, and then we turn the key. We turn the key and we say, you know what, God, I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I just need this thing. If I have this, I'm good. I have another quote by C.S. Lewis. Well, actually, before that, <sighs> hell is just a freely chosen identity based on something else other than God going on forever and ever. That's Lazarus. I mean, that's the rich man in this story. He has chosen his identity, and he's living in it forever. And he's so married to it, he's so blind, that he doesn't even care to get out. And some people are like, well, I just, I just don't know. And I thought this, too, like th just this idea of God sending people to hell, you know, and he like throws them into this pit. And then people are like crawling up the sides being like, oh, no, 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 please let me out. Please let me out. And he's like, no, no, it's too late for you. You stay in hell forever. Like that's that's what a lot of people think of when they think of hell. And my last C.S. Lewis quote, he says it so well. He says, in the long run, to all those who object to the doctrine of hell, this raises a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all costs and to give them a fresh start? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, but they don't ask to be forgiven. 
to leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is exactly what he does. Hell is not a place where God sends people and tells them, this is where you have to go because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. It's a place where he says, okay, you've locked me out. I'll give you what you finally want. I'll step back. And you can deal with the full result of what you've given yourself to. I got to say, this, this subject is a really big deal to me because as a Christian, I feel like we're always blowing out fires. We're always watching things crop up in our lives, and we're like, oh, man, I got to blow this fire out before it takes over me to the point where I want this over anyone else and anything else, including God. Pornography. I remember in college when I had to make the decision, hey, this is not going to be in my life at all. I noticed pornography, it, it did something to me. It changed the way that I, I talked to people, changed the way that I looked at people, changed the way that I treated women, changed the way that I looked at women. If I let that continue in my life, how was I going to treat my future wife? I'll tell you, a desire for greatness, a desire to always please people and to be regarded as great in the eyes of people, that's another fire I've had to put out and always be aware of, to not serve people's opinion of me. These things, good things, some of them. Pornography, no. Nah. A lot of things, they're good things, but we make them everything. And they consume our lives, and they make us addicts to the point where we don't want anything. We're enslaved to them. This is some real stuff. So the doctrine of hell is huge for us understanding who we really are in the possibilities of sin unchecked in our lives. The possibility of that. Hell helps me to show that. Now some of y'all are like, man, George, you just finished your first point and we've been here for 30 minutes. Don't worry. <laughs> that was two-thirds of the sermon. <laughs> the second thing. Why is hell critical? Why is it critical for us living at peace in the world? <laughs> Let me ask y'all a question. Who thinks Mercy is more important than justice. A few of y'all are brave enough to raise your hand. Some of you probably like, yes, I think so, but I'm not going to raise my hand because I might be wrong. Who thinks ju justice is more important than mercy? Ooh, a few people. Okay. It's about the same number. I bet most of y'all have an opinion, or some of you are like, I think they're both equally important. Let me ask you a question. Who likes it when somebody comes and hits your car and they drive off and they never tell you about it? <laughs> Adriana, you experienced that. I'm, I'm sorry. That happened to me first week of school, first day of school. Someone hit my car in a lair and they gave me a wonderful note of silence. And so <laughs> it was great. Who likes to see murderers get away with murder? Or drunk drivers hit someone, kill someone, only to never, only to not get hurt and not face any punishment for their crimes. Who likes to see these things? We watch injustices all over the world all the time happen. Innocent people get stepped on. People who take illegal actions and then reap major benefits from it. We see it all the time in this world. 
how do you reconcile the injustices of what's done to you and what we see around the world? My thesis, believing in hell. You're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Track with me. There's a man named Miroslav Volf. He wrote a, he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. He's a Croatian. Who's familiar with the, with the war in the Balkans in the, 19, in the early 90s? Some of y'all? Okay. Basically, short history lesson, former Yugoslavia. Some of y'all are like, man, why, does no, why do I never hear about Yugoslavia and CNN? Because it doesn't exist anymore. But it used to be, it used to be a country in the, you know, behind the Iron Curtain, communism, for anybody who's not familiar with Iron Curtain. There was a civil war. All these countries battled with one another. Croatia, ha Bosnia, Herzegovina, Govnia. I don't think I said that right, but anyways. Uh, you know, there's an Serbia. Those countries were some of the countries that broke apart in this. And so this guy, Miroslav Volf, he is a Croatian who, ex who was in the middle of this, and he watched a lot of innocent people die in order for this to happen. And so Miroslav Volf, he talks about this cycle of retaliation that took over his country. And he says this, the cycle of retaliation is not fueled by a belief in, go in a God of judgment, but fueled by a lack of belief in the God of judgment. If God were not angry at injustice, the God, that God would not be worthy of worship. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine, just, in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many. He goes on to say this. I didn't make a slide for this. It was kind of long, but I'll just say it fast. When you talk to people who have seen their homes burned and their family members killed and raped, who have had serious injustices done to them, how do you stop them from picking up a sword and being sucked into the cycle of violence and retaliation? What are you going to say to them to stop them if you don't believe in hell? Will you say, well, you know, violence doesn't really solve anything. Not only will such moralizing not touch their hearts, but it shows no concern for justice. And anyone, anyone who has seen injustice like that says, injustice has, justice has to be done. Wolf goes on to say, the only resource powerful enough to pacify our desire and our justice and keep us from wanting to retaliate when we've been wrong is to say there is a God, and he will put everything right. If you don't believe there is somebody who will make everything right, you will pick up the sword. You will get sucked into the cycle of trying to give people what they deserve. I'm not saying that I think that people ought to go to hell. I think that's the ultimate worst case scenario. God never wants anyone to go to hell, but he does defend the cause of injustice or people who have been oppressed by injustice. He cares. He cares about people who are looked over. He cares about people who are taken advantage of. He cares about your circumstances. He is concerned about that. He is a just God. I think it's so interesting here. You have to look at it. What does Abraham say to the rich man? He doesn't say, oh, you evil sinner. He calls him son while he's in torment. Even then, even in this situation, there is an extent of pathos here. 
It is a tragic situation to look upon this rich man in Abraham's eyes, and this rich man doesn't even get it. It's always a, trage a tragedy when someone goes to hell. But this is one of, the, one of the things I love most about when I think about when, when I think about hell. I love the fact that I know that God is going to defend my cause if I trust him. There's three verses. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that say this, but here's just three. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Psalms 18 through 30, and 2 Samuel 22 through 31. They all say basically the same thing, that God is a shield to those who take refuge in him, to those who trust him. <laughs> Do you all realize how good, how good of news that is? He is a shield to those who, take, who trust in him. This means when somebody hits your car, Alexa, or when somebody takes advantage of you somewhere, or when somebody does this to you or that to you, you can let it go. You can say, you know what, God, you've got this. You don't have to, you don't have to right the wrongs of this world. You don't have to go on a personal vendetta to go and give people what they deserve. You can let things go and say, Lord, I trust you with this. I know you're good, and I know you'll take care of all this stuff. I don't need to be owned by retaliation and giving, trying to make people feel as bad as I feel. I can put my sword down. This is, this is some good stuff. The last thing. Why is the belief in hell crucial for us tonight and the rest of our lives? Because it shows us, it helps us to understand the full love of God. You look at this story. The rich man is here. This guy's a wreck. He doesn't get it. He's missed it. He says to God, you know, why don't you go and send, could you just please go and send someone from the dead to go and talk to my family? Because if you do that, then, then they'll, you know, then they'll follow. And Abraham says, the very last thing he says, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not be convinced. That word convinced is a really strong word. It's much more than what we think of. It's not just like, it's not just, you know, rationalizing the evidence that you see. Like what, basically what he's saying is like, you know, it's not enough for someone from the dead to come and talk to your family. Like, like think like, he goes, <laughs> what is he gonna do? Is he gonna write a letter to his family? He's gonna be like, hey, you know, like, hey, here's a letter, it's from Lazarus, you know, I'm back, and boom, there you go. And then his family members get like, oh, snap, there is a hell. Oh, man, look, is, I know there's a hell now because there's a letter from my brother. It says, you know, look out, you know, like, no. <laughs> like, that's not gonna convince his family. Why? Why is it not gonna convince him? It's more than just, like, taking on something because you see the facts laid out. It's about something more. Why is that not going to convince his family? Because fear will never, it'll never shake this cycle, this fire. It'll never shake it loose. It'll never change it. 
fear doesn't change anything. Fear of hell won't keep you out of hell, and fear of hell won't help you, won't help you to do what's right. Why? Because when you do something based on fear, you're still doing it just so you can benefit yourself. What's the problem with you and me? What's the problem with us? What's the problem with this world? It's selfishness. The most simple definition for sin is selfishness. It's me on top of you, me over you, me instead of you, me, 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 my feelings, my pain, my this. I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to do this to you. I mean, I mean man, I, how many times do we see people's hearts get broken because one person says, you know, my feelings are so important that I can do whatever I want to you. I can take advantage of you in any way because I deserve this. Because my feelings are more important than your feelings. It's all selfishness. And this man, this man, the rich man, he doesn't get it. He's missed it. That's why they won't be convinced, because fear of anything will never change your heart. You can't scare someone into doing what's right, because it's still a power play. Because if you, look, if Jesus comes back from the dead, well, if Jesus shows up in this room right now, and he's like, Hey, guys, I'm here, I'm real, I'm alive. Everybody's going to be like, oh, man, what do, what do I do? What do I sign? Like, what do I have to do next? Like, no, that's not enough. Because then you'll just be doing it to get into heaven. You'll be using God. It's still a power play. It's still you trying to be in control. And so what will change our hearts? Love. Radical love. Realizing the radical love. That is what's going to transform us. That's what's going to change us. Not making decisions based on power plays, but making decisions on selfless love. You're like, uh, I, don't, I don't really understand what you mean by that. Moses says it here. He says, where are you? Not Moses. Abraham says it here. Where are you going to find? Like, what does your family need? What they need is they need to listen to Moses and the prophets. What do Moses and the prophets say? One of the prophets, Jeremiah, he says, the heart is a deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can fix it? Isaiah. I don't have a slide for this. Isaiah, if you've never read Isaiah, man, it is so worth your time. Isaiah 53, 53 and Isaiah 42 both say, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Just as there were many of us who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. His form was marred beyond human likeness. For the Lord God made Jesus' Jesus's life a guilt offering for our sin. But the results of his suffering, God will see and be satisfied. My righteous servant, will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. A friend, a friend of mine, Martin Lloyd-Jones, yes, he's an author. I've never met him. He's been dead, but he's still a friend of mine. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and it helped me so much when it came to this subject. He said, how do I know how much Jesus paid for me on the cross. How will I ever know? He said, I have to know 
why he did what he did and how much he paid in order for it to really hit me. Case in point, what if a friend is at your house and they walk and they, they, they're at your house and they see you later on and they say, hey, hey, Jordan, I was at your house earlier today and uh, the mailman showed up and there was like, you know, there was a bill that came and so don't worry about it, I paid it. Well, I don't know how to respond unless I know how much this friend paid. I don't know whether I need to follow his feet or whether I need to like, you know, just shake his hand and be like, thanks. What if he said like, ah, oh, you know, it was just the postage due. I give you, okay, well, thank you. What if he says, hey, Jordan, Sally Mae sent you a bill. All your school loans are due. It was $75,000. Don't worry, I paid it. What if it was a bigger bill? Unless you believe in hell, unless you see just what our sin deserved, you will never understand just how much Jesus paid for you on the cross. It will never hit you. You'll never know how much it cost him. When he cries on the, on the cross and he's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you realize that Jesus talks so much about hell because the fire, the fire that we talked about earlier fell on his own heart and he took it. He took what you deserved, the full result of your sin, all the addiction to get steeped into that and for it to consume your life. The reason it won't, if you trust in him, is because he, he took that on himself. When you realize that what he took on the cross was so much more than just a physical pain, to lose the friend, to lose the love of a friend hurts. To lose the, f the love of a wife, that hurts even more. But to lose the love of someone that I have had a relationship with for all of eternity, to lose that love, to have the father turn his back on him and say it was his, it was, it was, it was separation. God, God let Jesus take that isolation and that separation, that disintegration, he let it fall on his heart completely until you realize that what Jesus took on the cross was more than you will ever experience in an eternity in hell. You will never understand just how much he loved you and how far he was willing to go for you. I remember the very, the very conversation I had where it all turned around where it finally made sense that, hold on, this hell thing is about a whole lot more than what I used to think. When my eyes started to be open, it was when I realized that if God didn't judge me, he, it proves that he never loved me. What do I mean by that? I had a friend, I had a friend whose dad was awesome. His dad bought him whatever he wanted, Dude, had all, he always had the flyest kicks. He had the flyest everything. He got literally whatever he wanted. He just said, hey, I want it. And that weekend he came back. He came back from the, most, the last weekend, and he, he had it. Dude had some fly stuff. But his dad, his dad didn't care about him. His dad never talked to him. I remember when my friend got in trouble and got suspended at school for something really bad. His dad didn't even ask him about it, didn't even care, didn't even question him about it. He was unfazed. I used to think, I used to look at this friend and be like, man, I wish I could have a dad like you. And he's like, man, Jordan, I wish I had a dad like yours. I wish I had a dad who actually got mad at me. 
I wish I had a dad who actually cared about what went on in my life. The fact that God is going to judge me and the fact that he is interested in what I did in this world tells me that the most minute details of my life are an interest to the God of the universe. It tells me that he cares more than I could ever imagine. He judges me because he loves me. Some people are like, ah, you know, I just can't get with the whole idea of a God of judgment and wrath and a God who sends people to hell. I just can't get with all that. Then I'd ask them, what did it cost your God? What did it cost him to love you? A God who just loves everyone. A God sounds nice. I'm sure in some way probably moves me. But but what I know about God is that it cost him something to love me. It wasn't easy. And he took it. He took all that I deserved. He took it upon himself. The band can go ahead and come back up. Sin is real. And it can consume our lives and become a fire that takes over us forever if we let it. Hell shows me that. It also shows me that I can let God be my shield and he can fight injustices in this world. I don't, I don't need to carry a sword around. And it also tells me how much he loved me and how big of a bill he paid for me and how my situation is hopeless away from him. The very last thing I want to read is John 3, 16, 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If you want a love that transforms your life, that allows you to sing things where you can say, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. If you want a real love that gives you humility and boldness, wonder, awe, and praise, put your trust into God and believe what he says about the, the reality of what it means to, to truly say, you know what? I pick this over you. I'm going to make this more important than you. I'm going to say that this, I need this in my life more than I need you. If you want to be changed, trust him. Say yes to him. Say yes to him in every way of your life. Wherever he leads you, whatever he's asking from you. Lord God, you know, I really hope, I know, Lord God, I know that you spoke to people tonight because you spoke to me years ago about this and you showed me just how much you loved me and you showed me just how dangerous my situation was. Lord God, help us not to, not to deal with you lightly. Fill us with a holy fear, Lord God, where we take you seriously. Help us to realize that fear is, 
means to take something seriously. And Lord, we need to take you seriously and to not play around with the things that you said. Lord God, you love us and you care about us more than we will ever understand. Help us, Lord God, to realize this. Help us to see how much love is wrapped up in this whole doctrine of hell and what you said, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for your your love for us. Thank you. Pray this all in Jesus' name.